everyone, and welcome to the Future of Work podcast series. This is your host, Ellen Wong from Leeds University Business School. Hi, this is Mark from the Career Service. In the last couple of episodes, we focused on the conversation around the future of skills. We discussed some of the current trends and how they are going to impact on future of skills from both employability perspective and also industry perspective. There's a lot of debate over the skills needed um, and what they are for the future and how skills requirements jobs are changing. Uh, There are reports in the news every day at the moment about skill shortages and how the pandemic has also had impact on these. Vacancy levels are highest since the record began in the UK and these often attributed to skills mismatches. So joining us today, we have invited back Chris Ford, who is a professor of employment studies at Leeds University Business School and also a deputy director at ESRC Digital Future Work uh, Research Centre. So I'm hoping to continue this conversation and dig a little bit deeper to discuss what skills are needed in jobs today and what are how are these changing? Um, what skills are required in emerging industries, in green economy, in cyber and AI spaces? Are these skills being displayed um, or transferred even? What are these implications for young workers and graduates? Um, and what can we do to prepare them for the changing world of work? So there are definitely plenty to go through today and I think we should uh, definitely get the party started So welcome back, Chris. Thank you. Um, So let me start by asking, you know, an opening question. You know, we talked about a a lot of uh, changing skills needed. What are these skills needed for the future? And, you know, are there really that much difference for those needed today? That's a really interesting question. Um, There's a lot of research on this, as you might expect. Um, A recent report by the National Foundation for Educational Research has done a study looking at what the essential employment skills will be um, in the future, which ones will be in demand and which ones will be in decline. And their review came up with some perhaps unsurprising findings here. The the areas where uh, there's going to be a growth include things like natural and applied sciences, digital and information communication skills, um, and industries like education and health and social care. And broadly, they look at declining sectors being manufacturing, production, um, and in some areas of retail and admin and secretarial. Interestingly, in those last few areas, it's um, the displacement of people uh, by technologies that, that's, that's driving that decline because you know, retail um, work is, is, uh, and, and employment is, is actually been on the increase in, in recent years. But there, there will be some automation, I think. Um, and there may be changes in the number of people employed in there in the future. So this, re- this, this broad review by the National Foundation for Educational Research talks about some skills that are going to become more important and that again includes some that we perhaps wouldn't be surprised at given what we've uh, covered in uh, previous episodes of, of, of this podcast. Analytical and creative skills around problem solving, decision making, critical thinking and analysis. Uh, some soft skills like interpersonal skills, uh, self-management skills, and interestingly, emotional intelligence skills as well. And one of their key conclusions I think is worth highlighting here, um, they argue there's responsibility both on the education system and upon employers in the workplace playing important roles in fostering those skills by um, uh, providing the right education, but also in the workplace ensuring that 
training and development activities happen and, and, and continue so that people's skills are refreshed and developed on an ongoing basis. Yeah, that's really interesting, Chris. Thank you for, for, for that. Um, I, I, I think, Mark, I don't know if you would agree, there are definitely some common themes coming through, you know, that from the first episode that we talked about and also the conversation with Nicole from industry perspective, the automation is definitely something that drives the decline in some of the jobs, um, skills in, in particular, and you know that's what's impacting the, the workforce. And also some of the things that going forward is more to do with the emotional intelligence and soft skills, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, I agree. Although obviously uh, technologies are gonna increase the number of jobs uh, that will be available for young people. Um, it's interesting that, as I said yesterday, or not necessarily yesterday, but whenever people listen to the interview we have with Nicole, um, that at the moment with the, uh, the airports, one of the things that looks like they're going to be replacing is the customer service, and yet that's the thing that has been lacking um, in terms of uh, assistance and help for all those poor people who have been stuck at the airport. So, you know, as I was saying to her, sometimes technology is introduced very quickly, without thinking about the ramifications of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there will be a great deal of change, most definitely, but I think one of the main things will be upskilling. So, as Chris said, you know, uh, employers and, and education institutions will have a big, a big part to play you know, with regards to upskilling. Absolutely. I mean, there are a couple of areas that are often being cited as important areas of growth, right? So they are data skills, so digital skills. Um, are these being supported in research at all, Chris? Yes, I think there's support for both of those as areas of, of growth um, due to the change in nature of jobs and where there's going to be um, a lot of demand and also where there's quite a lot of shortages as well. So a recent government report by the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport uh, in 2021 said that there were around about 250,000 vacancies at the moment needing data skills and half of businesses have struggled to recruit to such roles over the last two years and indeed that was one of the, the key areas, um, the most important areas where they're struggling to, uh, to recruit people. Now there's definitely more graduates emerging with data analytics, um, AI, uh, cyber skills and the government's looking to uh, try and ensure that uh, foundational data skills will be taught to all undergraduates. And if we drill down a bit to see what that actually means, um, the sort of things that come up in this report are, again, a mix of soft skills and more technical uh, skills. So information management, knowledge of emerging technologies and solutions, data communication skills, communication and database management. Um, these are covering a range of hard and soft skills. So it is about data literacy, um, and information management, uh, but it's also about other things like analytical mindset, the ability to analyze, um, and also it, things that come from that report, things perhaps you don't necessarily equate directly with uh, data, but um, adaptability and an ability to understand data ethics and, and things like this. Um, there are definitely big gaps in these areas. Um, so one reading of this report is quite pessimistic, saying, okay, there's huge gaps here. Um, these are, these are things which are very hard to fill. But in other ways, it's, there's ways of looking at that more optimistically. I think graduates are increasingly well-placed to provide these skills, and they do often acquire them on their degrees. Um, to give you an example from Leeds, um, we've got this Q-Step programme, uh, which is trying to look to ensure that graduates across the social sciences, uh, coming out of undergraduate degrees, acquire some quantitative data skills training during their degree. And that's much more embedded in 
degrees um, now, I think, in the, in the social sciences than it was, say, a decade ago. So there's, there's reason to be optimistic in that area, I think. That's fantastic, Chris. <laughs> um, I think with the 250,000 vacancies going at the minute, I, I think even if Lee's takes a 1%, that what makes 2,500 uh, jobs, that's going to keep you very busy, Mark. <laughs> well, indeed, absolutely. I think, uh, oh, sorry, Chris. I was going to say, it's a good demonstration of your quantitative, your data skills there. Uh, oh, thank you. I just hope I didn't get that number wrong. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Mark, that, that's going to keep you very busy, isn't it? If it is. Absolutely, yeah. And I think um, we were talking earlier about this, but the other thing is that, you know, as Chris was saying there, a lot of our undergraduates are going to learn about how to sort of, you know, learn the data skills and what have you. Yeah. And I think, you know, as long as there is a connection between what the employers want and what we are teaching, because obviously the university is there to get the students ready for work, um, and as long as there is a connection there between the employer and the university, that's really, that, that's really important. I mean, often, sometimes, I'm not sure if Chris has this as well, but a lot of students that go out and placement that I'm tutoring, you know, the first thing they'll do is do an Excel course, because the Excel needs to be much more sort of relevant to that employer. And I think that's quite a key thing as well. So... You know, sometimes there is this slight disconnect. The employer feels that, you know, our students or graduates may have the sort of skill set already. And they've certainly got skills, they definitely have, but are they necessarily sort of relevant to that sector or that, to that employer? I'm not necessarily so sure. So, I mean, you know, as long as there is a connection and, um, you know, things move very quickly as well. So the other thing is, you know, in terms of our modules and the work that we, that, that we have embedded in the curriculum, you know, whether that moves at the same sort of pace as, you know, technology is affecting the world of work as well is quite an interesting thing. Absolutely, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, it's to keep up with the change and the pace and everything else. So I think we've covered, you know, quite a bit on the, on the data skills. Uh, just going back to the digital skills, Chris, what, what about the digital skills? What does that really mean? That can mean a whole range of things. Uh, one common definition splits it into basic... Uh, skills and, and digital skills for the general workforce and then skills for IT professionals in particular. So on the basic digital skills it would be the sort of things you would think every citizen would have to be digitally literate. So being able to use digital applications to communicate, being able to do basic internet search, searches, that sort of thing. Uh, digital skills for the general workforce would uh, include those basic skills plus the skills that you would need in a workplace. So to take Mark's example, um, being able to use and manipulate an Excel spreadsheet, for example, um, important in you know almost all contexts, I think. Um, these skills are likely to differ across sectors, but there's going to be some minimum and standard requirements, I think, linked to processing information that will be relevant to, to most sectors. And then you've got skills for IT professionals. So all of the above uh, skills, but specific skills needed to work in the IT sector and that's going to be one which is growing I think in importance. Now interestingly many people do have basic internet skills but there are still some gaps there. Um, so some research for our Digit Research Centre by uh, Becky Faith and Kevin Hernandez this year uh, looked at this idea of digital exclusion and inclusion and found there's still some, some important groups being digitally excluded. We assume everyone's got access to a smartphone an internet connection, um, but it does vary across regions. Um, some groups are more likely to be excluded than others, older workers, for example. Those that are in poverty or um, long-term unemployed uh, tend to have a higher probability of being digitally excluded. Um, so there are important gaps here. Um, it, it's not just this, um, this is often this assumption, I think, that there'll be this seamless transition to 
the new digital world of work. But there are some real challenges and some gaps there as well, I think. Sorry, I'm just going to ask a one follow-up question, if that's okay. I mean, it sounds like from what you've described, Chris, that's going to create some inequality. Um, and how do you think that we could possibly mitigate that, those, uh, you know, in the future, please? I think you're right. I think there's, there, there are some inequalities there. And what the, what the research around digital technologies uh, shows is that it tends to worsen existing inequalities that already exist. So if you look at the experience of certain groups um, in work and employment, um, there's often these inequalities which which come into play. So um, some of this is just worsened, I think, when we look at uh, the experience with digital technologies. Uh, what can be done? Um, well, again, looking at the um, research that I talked about for Digit, they suggest that it is important to, to, to focus in on uh, particular regions or particular areas and understand what the particular challenges might be in those areas. So is it about uh, things like, um, uh, you know, geographical limitations and access to, uh, to, 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 to be able to access the internet and, and technology, you know, limitations on broadband speeds, for example? Is it that um, the sort of jobs that older workers are doing um, are less likely to require those sort of digital skills and that there's a, there's, there's, there's just differential access to particular jobs and occupations for different groups? Or is it that those groups, for example, those in poverty, um, those that are out of work, are just simply excluded from uh, being able to access um, the, the digital skills that they need um, as a result of the situation they find themselves in? And that's where I think um, there needs to be sort of government support and um, investments to, to ensure that those sort of inequalities can be addressed. There are challenges for employers there as well. I think there's an emphasis, there's a need for employers to think um, about the acquisition of digital skills on a long-term basis. So thinking about the profile of their workforce um, and trying to ensure that those groups that may not have automatic access to um, to training within the workplace um, can, can get the, the skills that they need. So rather than sort of simply thinking about managing change when it happens, to think about more the anticipation of change and thinking about where they might be in 2030, 2035 and, and what sort of skills their workforce will need. If you look at some of the, the, the crisis points that we're seeing in a lot of industries at the moment, okay, some of them could say it was impossible to predict that the pandemic um, would, would come around. The Brexit um, situation has, has resulted in pinch points in particular areas. Um, but employers that are taking a long-term view on these things and are looking at um, the, their long-term skills requirements are going to be in a much better position, I think, to, to deal with those if they're uh, constantly thinking about the skills that their workforce is going to need in the future and how those things are going to change. So trying to manage that change uh, and think about the skill requirements of their, their workforce on an ongoing and long-term basis. That's great. Um, thank you, Chris. Over over to you, Mark. Uh, I have got a question, Chris, but can I just ask something about what you were saying there? Cause it's, quite, it's quite interesting, isn't it, in terms of you know, a lot of our graduates and young people, they're going to have to sort of learn these different skills, most of which are tech-based, aren't they, technology-based. Yet they may not actually be in the office. They may have to learn them remotely, and yet they'd have to have the technology know-how to be able to do that in the first place. I think that, that's quite an interesting point. Yeah, it's almost like a chicken and egg, isn't it? Mm, yeah. You sort of, you've, you've um, there's this assumption that to, to, uh, 
to acquire these skills, you're going to have to you're going to have to be pretty tech savvy, as you mm. say, uh, to begin with. Um, there has been this this there's been a definite move even before the pandemic. I think there's been a move to more online forms of training provision. Um, I think as you see that in many workplaces. There's a number of reasons for that. I think for many organisations, they see it as a, a fairly straightforward win for them that they can they can deliver training in a, a fairly standardised package to a large um, proportion of their workforce. And often that's done for compliance purposes as much as anything. It's not necessarily driven by the thinking about a long, the long-term skills perspective. We've all undertaken you know important um, training around sort of manual handling for example health and safety but often those I think are driven by the employer's desire to show that they're complying with you know, what they need to do in that area um, so I think it's important to think about is is online training delivery the best the, the best mechanism means for delivering a particular kind of training it may be perfectly appropriate in some circumstances but in other circumstances, thinking about the customer service examples that you're thinking about, it's it's hard to imagine that that could be delivered effectively um, on an ongoing basis to, to employees fully online. Um, so I think it comes down to thinking about what fits best. Um, workers think, you know, there's a lot of research around this value and, um, and like the idea of sort of face-to-face training. And often in the, in the past, a lot of that training was one-to-one training through mentoring or budding up with uh, with people to sort of learn things on the job um, I think if that sort of training disappears um, an important part of you know overall training provision and, and we move to sort of totally online I think that'd be a, a huge loss so I think it's, it's, it's going to vary from workplace to workplaces online might be perfectly appropriate in some circumstances but it does require people to have some um, some technical knowledge to, to be able to do that and that may put some people off from doing it you know not everyone completes all these training even though they're they're, they're supposed to, uh, to to do these online modules um, and sometimes that may reflect a, um, a reluctance to do it online uh, because of fear about the skills or the lack of skills that they've got in those areas great and um, just another question then how has the pandemic affected young people's skills in particular Without being too pessimistic here, there's, there's actually some interesting research by Francis Green at the um, Institute of Education, which does uh, point to quite a, a gloomy picture um, if you look at the pandemic. So um, half of 16 to 25 year olds in Francis Green's research uh, said that COVID had actually worsened their job skills, um, whereas only one in six said that it increased their skills. Now we might say that's unsurprising in the pandemic. You know, a lot of places were locked down. Um, Figures actually were worse for those in education. So there, two thirds of people are saying their skills had worsened. Um, whereas for those in employment, it's it was only about one third of people who said their skills had worsened. Um, we just show that those who are in education have been particularly hard hit, I think, by the pandemic in terms of their skills acquisition. Those that have managed to gain some work experience through placement um, online or in face-to-face in, in, you know, uh, during the pandemic whilst in education had fared better or were more likely to say that they thought their skills had, had increased. Um, I think things are getting better. There's, there's certainly evidence that uh, training provision is increasing now um, as, as we come out of the pandemic, um, but there is this sort of legacy effect. And I think particularly in those industries where there's, there was a lot of lockdown, retail, hospitality, food and, and beverages. It's, it's, it's been a real challenge, I think, uh, and people working in those areas, I think, have 
um, have really seen uh, a decline in the amount of skills that they've been able to uh, to pick up. Great. Okay. And I know we were talking earlier just about this <clears throat> in terms of um, you know the way sort of students perceive themselves and the skills. We were saying as well how you know over lockdown a lot of the sort of the media and information that was out, there, especially on social media, was slightly skewed because you know certainly with some of the, the students and the graduates I've worked with, you know, they had done really well. I think, you know, previously pre-COVID, they may have come in and not understood how to articulate certain skills, but they weren't anxious. Whereas obviously over lockdown, they were anxious and they were reading a lot of, you know, headlines that were were not exactly true. I mean, you know, we, we, we ran a webinar, myself and a colleague at Beckett ran a webinar based on one which was, will graduates ever work again? And in that week, I remember every day I'd seen at least one student who'd had two or three job offers. It was just misinformation. So I think it's around sort of, you know, what they read, self-fulfilling. I don't, you know, I, I think that may have an effect as well. Yeah, to be I honest. agree. I agree. Um, what are the implications coming out of the pandemic for young workers and graduates then, Chris? I think things have picked up, um, but there, there's some important things that, that, that are still bubbling under the surface, I think. Um, research by the Resolution Foundation, one of the big think tanks uh, looking at, at this area, uh, showed that there are sort of longer term issues. I think those that, those that have experienced some worklessness or unemployment during the pandemic, um, young people, uh, that is. So we're talking about people who are already in, in work here, uh, well, maybe at the start of their career. Um, they may be at risk of some sort of employment scarring over the longer term. And those that have returned to work after a spell of unemployment are, are more likely to be found on atypical, non standard, temporary uh, contracts. And also the share of young people who aren't participating at all in the labour market. So they're, they're not in unemployment or inactive in the labour market, but they're not also in full-time study. Seems to have worsened over the last six months or so as we come out of the pandemic. So there are maybe some structural fault lines here to, to, to think about as well. And that, that does really pose a lot of challenges, I think, for employers and policymakers. Um, policymakers have got to think I think about how to encourage those young people back into the, the labour market by supporting them, um, giving them the confidence and knowledge to find and apply for work and, and putting in place uh, supporting mechanisms to do that. And also the, the thinking about the labour market as a whole, and this is not something we're going to solve in this podcast, but it's something that uh, is worth raising thinking about the quality of work and the type of jobs that are available, ensuring that they offer sufficient hours of work, um, some degree of security and room for progression uh, for, for, for young workers um, as they look to move into these jobs. Now those are, those are big questions, I know and we'll get, we'll get them to think more about the, the, the state of the UK labour market and um, policy making around that, not just around skills, um, but I think there are a number of challenges there um, for, for employers and policy makers to think about. Great, thanks, Chris. Um, I think that's all, you know, very interesting and well, well covered in um, some of the research that you're involved in. I think one of the questions that I have is that we talked a lot about, um, you know, skills and especially skills shortages and mismatches. So my question really is, um, you know, how can these challenges been dealt with and in particular I'm interested in how does that impact on company strategies please? These are, these are big questions aren't they I think um, and, and we could look at it in a big picture way uh, and also around what individual employers and individual 
job seekers, graduates uh, might do. So let's start with the big picture. I think there are some big mismatches, as, as, as you said. Um, there's some very high profile examples over the last year um, about skills shortages in particular sectors. And you look at some of those um, and, and then try and marry it up with, with research which suggests, which, which, which looks at where workers want to work. Um, and there are some, some big disconnects there. Um, so a recent survey of 10,000 people um, of working age found that only one in five would consider working in food production, for example, and only one in four would consider working in social care. And these are two of the areas with the most acute skills shortages. Um, many of the sectors where there's shortages have been heavy rely heavily reliant on migrant workers. Uh, many of the sectors are also ones which are historically quite low paid. Um, they've got relatively poor reward um, and the opportunities for pro progression, uh, you often have quite flat hierarchies and relatively limited opportunities for progression. Um, so there's a lot going on here. There's, there's, um, there's, there's the impact of Brexit, um, there's the impact of Covid uh, and and these are, these are creating almost this perfect storm around um, uh, labour shortages and skills shortages within particular industries. Now going back to uh, something that, uh, that Mark mentioned right at the start of this podcast, I think, that, I think it's a really interesting point about um, automation and, 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 and it, you know, when we did research for a project um, that we're doing for the ESRC um, around the change in migration system, the limits project um, it, it, it's called. And when we talked to employers, they, they, they assumed, and, and, and policymakers also assumed, that as a result of Brexit, they would automate their, their labour processes. Um, they'd move away from their historical reliance on migrant workers after, after Brexit. But it's just not straightforward to do that. It's, it's really, in, in a lot of areas, customer service roles, for example, um, it's just not possible to automate all the processes. Or if you do, it, it creates a very poor sort of customer experience. And in those areas where there can be automation, workers still need to be trained to use the technologies. Um, there's still that interaction between workers and the technologies that are, that are coming in. And those technologies, as we talked about in a previous podcast, are, are expensive to bring in. Um, so there's often this focus, I think, on quite short-term initiatives to, to solve skills shortages. The lorry driver visas, for example, was, was a really good example of that. You know, it was, it was brought out very quickly. Um, this assumption that by uh, putting in place a quick, fast-track uh, process for uh, getting lorry drivers um, from outside the UK visas, this would, this would solve uh, the problem. But it didn't actually appeal to that many. There was relatively limited numbers who um, applied for those visas. Uh, perhaps that reflects the challenges associated with working in that sector, the longer-term issues around pay, reward, long shift patterns, etc., which are not going to necessarily be solved immediately by um, a, a visa uh, system. So I think there's thinking about things at a sectoral level and national level about the 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 nature of skills, um, the nature of work within particular sectors is is a very long-term issue, but one which can, over the long term, perhaps uh, help to address some of the skills shortages in those areas. And then alongside that, I think just a need for more investment in, in training within the workplace. Um, but again, that needs to be quite a nuanced um, approach, I think, at a sectoral and a local level. So thinking about what 
skills needs there are within a particular industry or occupational area at a sectoral level. In Leeds, there is this step into care scheme, for example, in social care. So uh, around Bermontoffs and just outside the inner city area, they've, um, they've tried to um, put in place processes and systems and uh, local initiatives to encourage the local population to move into um, social care jobs and, and into the NHS with a big hospital just, just very nearby. Uh, but this takes coordination, it takes time, it takes uh, resources. So I think there's, there's a need for sectoral level coordination, um, government investment in resources and, and to think about things at a local level as well to, to try and address some of these challenges. I think some of the solutions are often portrayed as being quite simple and straightforward you know, to address these, but actually they're quite complex they're very sectoral specific and they're also quite localised as well, I think, in some areas. So not, 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 a, um, not necessarily a particularly positive answer, I think, about this, but I think it, it does make us think about the complexities of addressing some of these bigger challenges around skills shortages. Great, thank you. So that's some of the big picture stuff. What about the individual employers and workers and graduates entering the labour market? What can they do? You might, you might be unsurprised at what I'm going to say here, given what I've just said, um, but I think maybe inc more encouragement to employers to invest in training, and I think this is happening. Um, apprenticeships in particular, I think, are proving to be a quite a viable solution to help bridge the skills gaps. So we've seen um, a growth in apprenticeships um, from a relatively small base, I think, um, but there has been, uh, through the development of modern apprenticeships, high-level apprenticeships, etc., these are quite a, a long-term solution, I think. They do require um, coordination between the education system, employers, um, and there's almost this long-term investment or commitment from um, the, 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 the job seeker uh, and the employer to this sort of shared investment in training. And I think that's a model and approach which can work uh, and perhaps can help to bridge some of the skills gaps and recruitment concerns over the medium uh, to long-term. Lots of research suggesting that businesses do believe that apprenticeships and work-based learning are, are critical and important to their long-term success and evidence that actually after the pandemic more employers are starting to turn towards apprenticeships and, and modern apprenticeships. Um, but again, that does require some sectoral coordination, it requires some coordination between the education system and, uh, and individual employers. A final point I think on employers uh, to, to talk about um, I think there perhaps is some change in the mix of, of workplace skills that employers are looking for and finding desirable uh, within candidates. So um, when employers have been asked uh, over the last 12 months about the skills that are more likely to become more important for them uh, when recruiting, things like IT skills um, and proficiency in using things like Teams and, and Zoom are, are ranked uh, much higher than they used to be, um, as are things like technical and operational skills um, decision making skills uh, the, the, these, the, these are skills which I think a, um, a lot of employers place a lot of emphasis on now as well as industry specific skills um, so there's a need I think for employers to prioritise upskilling lifelong learning and also thinking about um, recruiting and progressing from within uh, as well to try and ease some of their skills gap challenges 
That's um, that's a great summary. Um, thank you very much, Chris. I, I, I think, you know, there are three points that I'm taking from this episode. And I feel like we can go on forever, to be honest. There's a lot to talk about, isn't there, Mark? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, the three points that I've, I've taken from this today's episode is really, you know, I think something that Mark mentioned before is to be aware, you know, the um, commercial arguments is really, really important to, to be aware of what's happening right now what's going to happen in the future you know be aware of the trends um be curious that's uh, curiosity always uh, you know is is the key elements um of job seeking and then be proactive right so those are the three points um that, that i'm taking and i think if you can do that then you know the the future is bright um so i think that's all we've got time for today, unfortunately. Um, but thank you so much, Chris, for joining us and sharing some of the really interesting research on various of themes for the Future of Work podcast. And it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, I think we've, we've had uh, a lot of really interesting discussions and there's a lot to take away. So I think at this point, I really just wanted to thank you everyone for tuning in so far. And I really hope that you have all enjoyed our discussions uh, throughout on this really topical subject with uh, much to take away. In that case then, to conclude today's episode, I shall leave you with a quote by Robert Greene. The future belongs to those who learn more skills and combine them in creative ways. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Take care.